there. You're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. And on today's show, we're talking about dirty air and filthy earth. More specifically, we're looking at how scientists in Novosibirsk reacted last month to some new research on atmospheric and soil pollution in cities across Siberia. But before we get into that reaction and the political fallout afterward, it's worth noting that Siberia's environmental situation isn't so great, which may surprise you if you're a nincompoop like me, who casually assumes that uh, Siberia is just too damn, too damn big and, I don't know, full of trees and whatever to be seriously affected by spill here or some fumes there. According to this new report presented in March to the Siberian branch of the Russian Academy of Sciences, 78% of the 20 worst polluted cities in Russia are located in the Siberian Federal District, where 23 different cities have high air pollution index scores, including nine cities in the Irkutsk region, five in the Krasnoyarsk territory, and three in the Kemerova region. A whopping 99% of people who reside in the Tamir Peninsula are living in high air pollution. Now, granted, that's only about 5,000 people, but pretty much every last one of them is sucking down poison with pretty much every breath. In Siberia's worst affected cities, the most common pollutant is a highly carcinogenic hydrocarbon called benzoprene, or benzoprene, benzoprene. Anyway, it spreads mostly in emissions from aluminum production. The water and dirt in Siberia has problems too. 68% of the surface runoff in the Tomsk region is polluted. More than a million people live there. In the Novosibirsk region, where almost 3 million people live, this figure is 82%. As you can imagine, these levels of pollution cause more than just a bit of coughing or discomfort. Researchers also found high incidences of disease among residents in Kemerovo, Krasnoyarsk, Novokuznetsk, and Irkutsk. Scientists also linked pollution to cancer in Krasnoyarsk, congenital development defects in Kemerovo, and children's diseases in the Altai territory. The kicker here is that this report, presented on March 25th to the Siberian branch of the Russian Academy of Sciences, wasn't destined to be a bombshell. In fact, researchers drew their data from open sources, including information from Russia's Hydro Meteorology and Environmental Monitoring Federal Service. So these numbers were already out there. A team of scientists merely put them together. What turned the study into something that drew attention was the reaction from this presidium of the Siberian branch of the Russian Academy of Sciences. Its members argued that this new report was alarmist. And one scientist even said federal monitors don't actually have enough accurate instruments to know what Siberia's real pollution levels actually are. This whole discussion was live-streamed on YouTube, and the Presidium invited a Streisand effect by hiding it a day or so later. In other words, they made the problem worse. After news of the scandal broke, journalists from Taiga Info and Novaya Gazeta even watched the whole video, which quickly resurfaced elsewhere online. If nobody had tried to take this thing down in the first place, it's hard to imagine many people suffering through all four hours of that footage. When asked about this decision to withhold the new pollution research, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told journalists last week that the Putin administration played no role in the process. This was the scientists' own decision, so go ask them, Peskov said. I, I think uh, we should ask some psychologists about that. I don't know what, what is happening inside their heads, but I can speculate. That's Ilya Kabanov, a science writer whose work has appeared in news outlets like Taiga Info, Dilettante, and Republic magazine. 
He's reported extensively on pollution in Siberia, and he grew up in Novosibirsk. I asked him why he thinks this presidium of scientists was so worried that research about such a well-known problem based on open-source data would be politically risky. He says this kind of paranoia is typical in scientists who came up during the Soviet era. Scientists like chemical physicist Valentin Parmon, who warned against the pollution report's supposed alarmism. My guess is that this, this scientist, he's a real old-school guy, and he's been around for a long, long time. And he used to live in this atmosphere of fear, and he, he used to try to guess what the current party line is. And as we all know, the party line in Russia is shifting constantly. And one day it could be beneficial for your career to be an environmentalist and to speak openly about the environment. And the other day you feel like you shouldn't uh, talk about it at all. And my guess is that he tried his best to guess what uh, he should do right now. And if you listen carefully to the recording of this session, he was the first to suggest the ban of this information, although the author of the report said many times, repeatedly, that it's based on not only uh, on open data, but uh, on the data from government sources, government agencies. So it, it's all been published uh, a lot of times. Is this something that scientists are always kind of battling with when, is it, when it's a good time to speak openly about things that are already in the open? Is that like a common occurrence? I'd say that uh, it is true for an older generation of scientists, and they are not particularly keen uh, to, to be open and to speak to journalists and to tell the general audience about the, their research, either because they don't want to or because they feel that it's something that general audience shouldn't know. Do you know if that occurs in other countries? Is that is that something you're aware of happening in other places? I think that scientists in many parts of the world are aware of the necessity to explain their research to general audience because the funding of their research is depending on general audience. And Russian scientists don't see it that way. They don't see the taxpayers' money as a source of their funding. This might be a dumb question, but why exactly is pollution in Siberia so bad? Because it's to somebody who doesn't understand this, it's like, well, Siberia is like endless and there's hardly any people. Like, why would they be suffering with pollution? There should just be, you know, green and snowy spaces. Why do you think it's so bad there? It's a great question. The, the fact is that Siberia is not a natural reserve. Siberia is full of industrial centers, industrial cities that were built decades ago during Soviet times. And it's very dirty industries like you know, metal casting and things like that. And nobody cared to modernize it and to invest in new technologies and to invest in preventing the pollution. So these days they have to deal with that. And it's especially hard for people who live in the, these cities. They have to breathe this air and to drink uh, this water. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a huge problem in Siberia. I, I, I'd, I'd say not only in Siberia, uh, in other 
parts of Russia as well. But for Siberia, it's especially ironic because we used to think of its uh, endless field of uh, forests, of taiga, things like that. I got a slightly different answer when I asked physicist and environmental activist Yaroslav Nikitenka about funding for science in Russia. He says the Russian Academy of Sciences relies especially now on the state for the money it needs to operate. Hence the sensitivity to anything that might rock the boat politically. The Russian Academy of Sciences is very much dependent on the state because, because of the, it's financed from the federal budget. Most of scientific research is funded by the state. In many different countries, business finances a lot. But in Russia, the situation is different. This relationship, moreover, has become worse in recent years, says Nikitenko. It's more like in India, like two-thirds of all income is from the state. And also we know that government can make very bad things to science. For example, like seven years or five years ago, there was this notorious reform of the Russian Academy of Sciences, and many, many scientists opposed that. There were huge demonstrations, and it was, I think, pretty harmful for for the Academy, because now it has a status like any other federal agency. It's It was something special before that. And a lot of new bureaucracy was introduced So I think that many scientists and especially directors of institutions uh, of science, they are very much connected to the state. They depend on the state and uh, a bit feared of the state. Do you have any sense of what that what that relationship, like how it plays out on a kind of day to day basis? Because I know that during the Presidium meeting, the one that was broadcast on YouTube and then later removed from YouTube, at least where it was initially posted. One of the scientists suggested, I think one of the senior scientists was saying that this sort of research on pollution needed to be coordinated directly with the government. And so does that mean that like a scientist runs all the numbers and finishes the report and then they share it with somebody in like the, in either the governor's administration or the president's administration? Do you have any sense of what the conversation actually is there? Is it okay to publish this or is it, do we change the numbers or how does it actually, like what's the coordination exactly? What are they talking about? Well, I've never heard about changing numbers. So any falsifications, uh, I'm not saying about this. I just don't know. And I think let's uh, say it didn't happen because we can't be sure. But usually we know that they are very much dependent. For example, the director of the institute, he's not elected uh, only by personal, but of that institution, but also it must be agreed by the ministry. And this is the dependence of directors. So they, they can be fired at any time. Why do you think that there's such sensitivity to scientific research about pollution, let's say in Siberia or anywhere in Russia. It just it seems as though the pollution is so bad and such a part of everyday life that it's not a secret to anybody. And the numbers, for instance, that this latest research in Siberia, it was all based on open source and many of it government source information. And yet there seems to be a great deal of caution about putting this out publicly. Why why are they so sensitive this to this information if everybody seems to already know it? Is this 
why do you think that, that there's that scientists are reluctant to talk about this, even if, if it's sort of obvious to everyone? They want to mitigate the risks. And uh, I noticed that, uh, of course, I wasn't at that meeting, but I read some uh, reports and they mentioned that we should not publish this before the elections. And this indicates that uh, this is very, very much connected to the power of Russia to this party of power and not to science. Because for science, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when you publish your research. I, I think that there were some maybe public sources, open information, but also scientists, they have many, many detectors with unique information and uh, not all data is open. But so I don't know why there was so much effort and I don't know whether there was something new in the data. I can say that government tries to hide a lot of environmental information and this is a very big problem. Do you think that environmental activists are able to achieve very much in Russia is because I, I it's a it's kind of an ongoing news story that I is some kind of landfill nearby or there's some kind of industrial pollution that is upsetting the ecology of some town or city and the locals get together and they protest and sometimes it sounds like they get they get a, some kind of industry stopped or or halted and maybe even a clean, there's a cleanup effort but what's your impression of environment the sort of health of the environmentalist movement in Russia? Is it able to achieve change or stop pollution in, in any instances? Or would you say that for the most part, it's not, it's, it doesn't really have the, the power right now to effect change? I think uh, it is mostly like all other activism in Russia. And one of the biggest problems is that our society is uh, pretty passive. Is it from the Soviet Union when everything was done by the state and there were huge repressions? Or is it uh, just because of today? I don't know, but but usually people are very reluctant to go out and defend their rights, be it environmental rights or other rights. And usually when there is a protest, in the majority of cases, the government or business, they win because they are more organized, they have more resources. But uh, there are cases when it's possible to win, for example, in Shias, in Arhangelsk, region, they defended their land from garbage from Moscow. And this was a very good victory. I live in Moscow. I go back to Novosibirsk maybe twice a year and I travel frequently to other Siberian cities. And the environment was a big part uh, of my reasoning to move from Siberia to Moscow because although Moscow is a big city with a huge population, it's cleaner than Novosibirsk and the uh, air is cleaner, uh, the water is more drinkable than in Novosibirsk. So, yeah, I came to Moscow because I tired of breathing dust particles in Novosibirsk. Is that something that people talk about openly? I mean, because it seems like it would be ever-present. Like, if you live there, it's just part of your daily life. So, in your experience, when writing about these environmental issues in Siberia and in other places across Russia where the pollution is particularly bad, what's the kind of nature of the public discussion around those issues? I'm just curious, is that like, is pollution just a part of like daily conversations. Do you look at the air quality index? I mean, this happens in California now because they have fires every summer or whatever, but is it something that you have to kind of work into your daily routine where you look and see 
Is it bad today? I would say that yes, uh, it, it's a part of daily lives of people who live in Siberia. They talk about it a lot. I'm not sure if anyone tried to uh, learn what uh, particular level of pollution today, but uh, it's, it's a topic of discussions among uh, uh, among people. And what are the, you mentioned dust in the air. What are the particular kinds of pollution that are that most affect just people kind of I know there are there are heavy metals in the soil and the runoff water, and that can lead to like long term problems. And there are carcinogenics and so on. But what are the kind of like forms of pollution that you you face kind of like on a daily level? As far as I understand, uh, it's heavy metals. Yes, it's the products of uh, burning uh, coal and uh, oil and gas. Uh, so all, all all kinds of this stuff. And in some parts of Siberia, it's radioactive pollution. For example, there was a story last week in one small village. The water source was polluted with uh, uranium or something like like this. And in in Novosibirsk and in many other parts of Siberia, the huge problem is so-called natural levels of radon. Um, So radon appears naturally in many stones and granite and all sorts of things. And because of the geography, it's a particular problem in Siberian cities. So we, we used to have daily, what's the word? So in my school, they used to uh, open uh, doors and windows daily just to blew the radon away. To, to improve the ventilation, they'd have to kind of... Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And is that, did, are the consequences of that that you ex- that people experience kind of themselves is it just is it like coughing shortness of breath or they like birth defects like how how are people actually I know there are many things that these elements and these this, these types of pollution can do to the human body but in your experience just reporting on these issues and living the, in these places how do people actually experience how do they experience these these forms of pollution what does it do to them well first of all life expenses expectancy is lower. Uh, in many parts of Siberia, the rates of cases of cancer is much higher, uh, and respiratory diseases uh, are frequent uh, as well. So, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's a huge problem for health for people who live there. Can you describe any of the the cleanup efforts insofar as they happen at all? Because I know during the the Presidium meeting that was you know ju- that just happened recently, one scientist mentioned that this new pollution research could disrupt, could be a problem for negotiations that were apparently, have been apparently ongoing with um, the Rusal Aluminum Company, and that, you know, that that, that's, that could be a voluntary cleanup effort, and that if we publish this research, it could, you know, make waves and be, and just kind of chase them away. Are scientists rightfully afraid sometimes that their work could, could disrupt these, these kind of fragile partnerships with corporations? I mean, how does, how do they navigate those, those issues? That's another thing. And to explain what the problem is, we should dive deep uh, into the nature of relationship re- relationship between scientists and the government. And what the Russian government uh, is saying at, uh, to scientists is, you have to earn your own money. So we don't want to finance you. We don't want to invest in science. Just feel uh, free to get finances elsewhere. And what should scientists do? They go to the companies, to Narilsk Nikil, to Rusal, to other polluters, and ask for grant money. And then they do research in regions where these companies are contributing to pollution. And it's it's a huge conflict of interests, I would say. And uh, just just today, I've read an 
a report published by the Siberian branch of Academy of Science last year. It's a report about their expedition to Tonorilsk. And this expedition was financed by Norilsk Nickel. And nowhere in the report they are disclosing this very important information. This report does say that uh, there is some pollution, but they, they try to greenwash it uh, as well. Yeah. For example, w w one of the, their ideas is because one of the lakes in this Norilsk region was polluted decades ago, we shouldn't care about current pollution. Which is funny. This is funny. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we discuss pollution in Siberia and the politics scientists navigate when researching these environmental threats. You also heard from science writer Ilya Kabanov and physicist and environmentalist Yaroslav Nikitenko. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English-language show. And next week, we'll probably be talking about either the military tensions again at the Russian-Ukrainian border, or hopefully about something less ominous, maybe Russia's genetic research program. Medusa released a major report on this earlier this week, and I'm busy translating it into English right now. Signing off, this is Kevin Rothrock, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening, and come back soon. <laughs>